The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Welcome back. It's a delight to be here. It's our ninth year together, and that is amazing to me. How many of you have been here for nine years? Some of you, I know for sure. We are journeying through the Old Testament, book by book, trying to see the story of God's glory as it's disclosed to us there, climaxing in the person of Jesus. So, a gospel-centered glance at the Old Testament, that's what I'm trying to unpack for us, this book by book, and we're doing it in the order of Jesus' Bible, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and so today is simply a catch-up time. It's a catch-up time, so some of what you will hear, some of what you will see will be uh, simply review for a lot of you. For others of you, it's just catch-up, and the next week we jump into the Song of Songs, which is just a great way to kick off an Old Testament survey for the semester. By Christmas time, uh, Jesus' Bible began with Genesis, ended with Chronicles, and by Christmas time, I trust that the Lord's going to let us get through Chronicles, and then... um, So what we've got is Song of Songs, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. That's the order of Jesus' Bible, and it ends at Chronicles. So I'm going to try to fit where we're at, Song of Songs and Lamentations. I'm going to try to fit that into the big scope of Scripture today. To that end, let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the King. As we were reminded through Pastor Jason today, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He proclaimed it before his resurrection and ascension. He proclaimed it between his resurrection and ascension. And then he proclaimed it through his church after his ascension. The kingdom of God. You are on the throne and you have allowed us as your people to enter into that kingdom. And so we rest today. We rest with a full board of full board of anxiety written out in our prayer requests. We rest knowing that you are sovereign over all and that you are for us in Jesus. I pray that as we meditate on your kingdom plan, climaxing in Christ, that you would let our hearts take courage, that you would help remind us that we are not alone and that we are part of a grand story, not forgotten, but intentionally being guided with with us part of it. Thank you for fresh mercy this morning. I'm holding fast to it today. Kingdom mercy purchased for us in the cross. Meet us, exalt Jesus, and grant us clarity that we might understand your word better. For his glory I pray. Amen. Pastor Jason pointed us in Acts chapter 1 to kingdom. That's what Jesus, that's that's the summary Luke gives to what Jesus was proclaiming. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, I'm going, uh, I, I have to go to other towns as well to proclaim the kingdom because that's why I've come. Jesus was about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, proclaiming that darkness right now is being overcome in the person of Jesus. That your pain, your struggle with sin is right now being given 
is right now being overcome, and we are gaining hope in the person of Jesus. The reign of God is intruding into the darkness. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is coming. The gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so what I did to try to help us understand the plan of God, the purposes of God, is I just laid out the story in seven stages. Other people have put them into 15, into 12, into 4. You could just say creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's 4. Well, I've put it into 7, and, and then the Lord helped me package it in a way that was memorable. So I'm just going to remind us uh, the story itself. And I keep hoping that papers are going to come in. I couldn't get the printer to work, so I emailed my document to Tim Frederick, and apparently he's still trying to get the printer to work, so we'll see. But this is going to be... um... Oh, they're right there? Oh, there they are. (laughs) Wonderful. If you can just pass them out for me, that'd be great. It'll help everybody track, and you won't have to write down everything. So I'm going to run through them quickly, and then you're going to see um, what one of my students prepared for me. Uh, which I think also helps us unpack it. K is for kickoff and rebellion. Creation, fall, flood. I is for instrument of blessing, that through the patriarchs, the curse would be overcome and blessing would be realized. N is for nation, redeemed and commissioned. We move from the patriarchs to Egypt, and then we need an exodus, Sinai, and wilderness. G is government in the land. This is Israel moving into the promised land, conquest, and kingdoms. D, dispersion and return. They weren't in the land long, and God exiled them. They were kicked out, and then they came back in initial restoration. O is overlap of the ages. This is where heaven comes to earth, and yet some of the old age is still existent. Christ's work and the church age. M is mission accomplished. Christ's return and kingdom consummation. If you can get those seven letters down, you can fit every story and every person of history into that framework. Old Testament is foundation for this kingdom plan. New Testament is fulfillment. So let's look first at the Old Testament side. What I had a student do was prepare images for each of the letters. And what was beautiful for me is that, I mean, I'm praying as I'm putting all this together, God, I I want to use it more than for my class, more than for my students. I I would love for you to be able to use this packaging of redemptive history, the story of God's glory in Christ that's just relayed to us in Scripture, use it on a broader scale. And last pastor's conference... Every tribe mission was in town, and they found my Old Testament survey on the book table. And somebody was around them, and they're talking about this image right here. Wow, we we could use this image. Three weeks from that point in February, they were taking a team, every tribe mission, to or to every tribe, to Papua New Guinea to minister to pastors in the bush via translators. So the kingdom acronym wouldn't work for them because that's bound up in English. Kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeeming and commission, government in the land, dispersion and return, overlap of the ages, mission accomplished. But the pictures are transcultural. 
And so they went there, and for two weeks they taught biblical theology, the story of God's glory in Jesus, and they used these images. They took each image, they put a, made it into a sticker, and they put it into a notebook on one side of the page. And then as they ta- taught through a translator, these pastors wrote down their notes in their own tongue. And then each of them had a notebook with an image that they were able to take back to their tribes and tell them the story of Scripture. I love it. And now it's being used in Mexico in the same way. Let's walk through it. K, kickoff and rebellion. We begin in paradise, the tree of life. All is well, but all doesn't stay well. God sets Adam and Eve in the garden to be displayers of Him. They're imagers of God. That when people see them, they see the God of the universe magnified. Not like a microscope magnifies a dust mite, but like a telescope magnifies a different, distant moon. That through a telescope we see more of the glories, more of the bigness, more of the greatness of our God, of this distant moon. We, that's, that's what's supposed to happen with us. People are supposed to see more of the greatness of God when they see us. We are imagers, representers of God, resemblers of God, reflectors of God. But, is, but Adam and Eve did not do what they were supposed to do. They fell. So the tree is an image of paradise. The apple is a picture of sin. And this pattern is going to be seen throughout the history of Israel. Sin is what followed. And because of that, they were kicked out of the garden. Exiled from their little promised land. Their little paradise where God dwelt with them in the midst. Now they're separated from God. And the sin continues and it climaxes in the waters of judgment. But God preserves a remnant. So in Genesis, we start out broad with all creation. Then we move to Adam as representative head over all creation. Then in the flood, mankind is killed, but God preserves a remnant of creation in the person of Noah. And then the focus is on Shem, who leads us to Abraham. So we start out with kickoff and rebellion, and we get paradise, sin, exile, and the flood of Noah. Now we move to the age of the patriarchs, father and a son. And it's in this period with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God sets apart one people. So start out with Adam as representative of all humanity. Then we have Noah as the representative who's preserved. All the rest dies. And then from Noah comes 70 families of the earth. And one of those families is going to be used by God to answer the global curse problem. Now one thing I need to pause and remind us of that I say over and over again, but I didn't say it this time, is back when we were at the promised land in the Garden of Eden, right after sin, but before the exile, something happens right here. And it's so massive for the rest of Scripture. It's that God, even before He kicks out humanity from His presence, He promises that one day they'll return. He promises that in Genesis 3.15 that there would be an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So the serpent represents all that is hostile to God. The serpent is against God's kingdom building purposes. He's against people displaying the worth of God. 
He wants them to not display that God is of value, not that God's word matters. That's what the Satan is doing. He's a kingdom killer. But God promises that the woman would give birth to an offspring. From the woman would rise a male deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, the implication is that he would provide a way for the curse that's about to be made to be overcome. That what is hostile to God would finally be put down. And for the rest of the Bible, this is the hope. When is that offspring going to come? So we come to Abraham, and his wife is barren. That's how the story begins in Genesis 11, verse 30. And in a book that is so filled with genealogies that are focused on the line of promise, the line of those who were hoping in the offspring promise, when we read that Sarah is barren, there's a problem, a signal just flagged for all of us, the reader, saying there's something that is going to have to happen. God's going to have to do a miracle, and that becomes the, pro- the context for faith. Abraham believed God in the context of this offspring promise because it would take a miracle. And God says in Genesis 18, is anything impossible for me? Is anything too difficult for me? Sarah's laughing. I'm going to have a child. I'm 90. Yes, I am that great. And then God leads Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah and slaughter him there. How do I do this? But Abraham was able to look back on 40 years of God's faithfulness. 40 years of God speaking and answering. He would remember that at Sodom and Gomorrah, both Abraham and Sarah heard, I'm going to destroy this people, and then the fires of God came down. This wasn't just one man saying, God talked to me and nobody else knowing it. No, it was evidenced on a corporate level. Many people were seeing and hearing what was going on. And it's in that context that Abraham believed and he was willing to sacrifice his son, confident, he says to the servants, we will return. We will return. And in that moment of God's giving a lamb, a ram, in the place of Isaac, something's being pointed to here that somehow God is able to enter in and provide a substitute. With Abraham, three promises are made. And that's what the dots mean. These aren't solid lines, these are dotted lines. The stars in the sky represent the offspring promise. All of them. You'll have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, but then one of them, one of them will be the offspring who will be the royal deliverer. A home. Every kingdom needs not only the king, you need progeny and property. You need a people and you need a land. And God promises that he would give them a land. They would be a nation. And then the compass represents that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In the north, in the south, in the east, and in the west. God's going to answer the global curse problem and it would rise through Abraham and specifically through his royal son. I is instrument of blessing. The patriarchs, the offspring promise, the land promise, and the promise of blessing to the nations. Now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph, ends up in Egypt. God raises him up for such a time as this, when God brings in the famine and forces Israel to Egypt. But now they enter into 400 years of bondage, and God 
promises to bring them out. He promised it to Abraham initially. Genesis 15, your offspring will be slaves in a land not their own for 400 years, but then I will bring them out, and I will bring them out with great glory. So Exodus begins with telling us that Israel multiplied greatly in Egypt. And so we have an initial fulfillment of the offspring promise. But they don't have the land yet, and they haven't been used as blessings to the nations yet. The king hasn't come. God brings them out of Egypt through the waters of judgment. It's not a flood now on the global scale, but it still is a watery judgment. And rather than an ark, he simply parts the waters and takes Israel through. En route to the promised land. That's where they're going. But before they get there, great deliverance, their redemption, is followed by a gracious law-giving. God actually tells them what it will look like for them to follow Him. But here's the kicker. He doesn't change their hearts. Why? Because God's kingdom plan doesn't climax in a nation. It climaxes in a person who represents the nation. He calls Israel to love Him with all. Love is what they were to do, and all the commandments simply told them how to do it. At the top of those were the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. What's wild is that these commandments were put into the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody could read them. They're put into the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God inside the Holy of Holies. Israel had no idols. At the very place in the temple where Israel would have expected to see an idol, what do they have? They have the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and inside that Ark are the Ten Commandments. They know they're there. That is the character of God and the glory of God are emanating out of the temple. But nobody can read the law. It's like a parable for the Old Covenant. The law was hidden. It couldn't be read by anyone. And that's what happened. Because the law was in the Ark of the Covenant and not in the hearts of the people, I will write my law on your heart, says Jeremiah 31. Because the people were not the temple, but because the temple was outside of them, the character of God was not being put on display. At Mount Sinai, God told Israel... I am commissioning you, if you will hear my voice and keep my covenant and be for me a treasured possession among all the peoples, then something's going to happen. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're not going to just have priests. All of you as a nation are going to serve as priests in the context of the world. So the world's under curse, and they need an answer, and the answer will be found from God. And now the nation of Israel is supposed to be displayers of God's holiness. A holy nation. And they're supposed to be the mediators of God's glory. A kingdom of priests. That's what God revealed to Israel as their mission. But it was never fulfilled. As a nation, it wasn't fulfilled because inside their hearts was not the law of God, but sin. And the presence of God remained outside of them rather than the Holy Spirit indwelling them. In Paul's words of 2 Corinthians 3, the law covenant 
the Mosaic Covenant bore a ministry of condemnation rather than a ministry of righteousness. And most of the Old Testament is a story of death rather than of life. Why? Because God had a purpose of bringing out the need for Jesus. He uses Israel as an example. If he fills them with all kinds of privilege, Israel gets the patriarchs, Israel gets the law, they get the covenant, they get the promises, even from them is the Messiah, says Paul in Hebrews chapter in Romans chapter 9. But in Romans 3, 19, he says, the law was spoken to those under the law, namely the Jews, in order that every mouth might be held accountable. How does that work? If Israel has such privilege, but doesn't know their God, who are we that weren't given that privilege as Gentiles to have all the law? Who are we to think that we could be right with God? All of us are held accountable because the Jews failed. And into that context, Jesus comes not only as the king of Israel, but as the new Adam. And he will be and do what Adam was supposed to be, the ultimate imager of God. And through Jesus now, the mission of Israel would be accomplished that through the offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus, all the world would be blessed. But the vision is cast right here at Mount Sinai. What also happens there is sacrifice. Because God knew right off the bat that they would need something in order to stay. A sinful people can only stay in relationship to a holy God by means of a substitute. God's holy fire, His glory presence, will either incinerate the sinner or it will be poured out on a substitute. And He provides them a way to do that. But the question is always, how can the blood of bulls and goats ultimately make me right with God? If I as a human sinned, I deserve the judgment. How can a lamb represent me effectively? It would have to take a human to represent me effectively, and that human would have to be unblemished like the lamb himself. Israel didn't respond well to the law. Instead of moving them toward life, it created within them greater sin. And because of that, they entered into a wilderness of 38 more years. So for 40 years, they were between Egypt and Canaan, not enjoying the promised land. God wipes out that generation and then raises up another by grace. So we've moved from kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, and now God moves them in. He moves them in in order to clean house as if the promised land is going to be God's temple. You can't have uncleanness in the temple. It's got to be a holy place. And that's where God had chosen to reside. And so Israel has to come in and they have a physical, earthly conquest. So one of the reasons God says, the the because, the reason that they're going to destroy the Canaanites is because they're wicked. But there's also a so that. Because they're wicked, they will destroy the Canaanites so that the Canaanites themselves will not be a snare to Israel and pull them away from their life of holiness, from their pursuit. Because it's in a holy context that they will fulfill their mission of putting God on display. And this is a world about God. They begin their conquest. 
and they find their paradise. So the promised land is parallel to the Garden of Eden. Israel is like a picture of Adam. God's starting new with Israel, and through them, he hopes to accomplish what Adam was supposed to accomplish. Remember, Adam was created outside the garden and put into the garden and commissioned to serve the garden and to protect the garden. And as he would, he would display the worth of God. He would be an imager of God. And then, what are they supposed to do? The garden isn't supposed to stay the same size. They're supposed to fill the earth multiply and subdue it as if the Garden of Eden, where God's presence resides, would be ever-expanding like a temple filling the earth. That's the original vision. So the promised land is like the Garden of Eden. And Israel's mission is to be great displayers of God, like a priest would put on display the holiness of God. The land promise finds fulfillment as they enter in. They're in the land. They're home. So 2 Samuel 7, just before the covenant God makes with David and reminds us of the offspring promise that a royal deliverer is going to rise, it says, and all the land was at rest. It uses the language of the Sabbath. From a picture perspective, Israel has arrived. Everything's at rest. The enemies are no more. David is on the throne. And everything is at peace with David. But then, two chapters later, David sins with Bathsheba. In order that you and I might know David wasn't the ultimate royal deliverer. He's just a picture anticipating the great royal deliverer. So Israel sins more. And from David... It moves on to Solomon. From Solomon, two kingdoms are separated. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. First, the northern kingdom goes down in 723. God allows Assyria to come in and bring the covenant curses on the north. Ten tribes wiped out. And then God, because Judah in the south continues in the same types of sins as the north, 2 Kings 17 says what their problem was. You don't believe, just like your fathers didn't believe. That's why the exile happens. It's a faith problem. Paul is able to say the old covenant law was not of faith. I don't think that means the law didn't call for faith. It means that it was never realized. Israel never believed. So the entire period of the law was characterized by faithlessness, not trusting in God, not surrender to God. It was characterized by sin. All of Israel, still a remnant, always a remnant, but the focus is on the community falling short of God's glory. Faith is the one thing we do that takes the spotlight off of us and puts it all on Him. Faith is about satisfaction in our God. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Israel was not there. They were an unsatisfied people because they never surrendered to their God. Their history kept going. And so what did God do? Just as they had entered in and experienced government in the land, now they experienced dispersion and initial restoration, dispersion and return. So the government and the land, conquest, they enjoy paradise, they're home, but their sin continues, and that results in an exile very comparable to, just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, Israel, who's supposed to look like Adam, is kicked out of their promised land. 
So in this period, we get prophets like Ezekiel and like Daniel who are telling Israel, they're asking, why are we here? And they're saying, it's because of your sin. But both of them are also testifying, reminding Israel that God's final word is not curse. Blessing. Blessing is where we're going. But Israel continues to live in sin. And this is the end of the Old Testament period. When the period ends, the story is like demanding a sequel. It's like Frodo and Sam walking out on the mountains and you're like, I can't wait one more year. Or that's... Or, or bring it like um, my daughter and I, after the first Hobbit movie, you know, all you get is the big eye of the dragon, and you're like, oh, 12 months? I've got to wait till I see this happen? This is ridiculous. So it's like you get to the end of the story, and you're, you're inside your heart, you're just crying out, isn't there more? Yes, there's more. Yes, there's more. So we move from, that's the foundation Kick off in rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, government in the land, dispersion and return. Now we move to the overlap of the ages. All the hope of the world is resting on this one offspring. Not just the nation, but the king who would represent the nation. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were bound up under the bondage of sin. Jesus comes. He enters into the world. But what is part of the mystery, part of the surprise, is that He doesn't just come all at once. The day of the Lord is what the Old Testament has been anticipating. When the day of the Lord comes, when God comes as the mighty warrior in the clouds with His sword and His voice thundering, all evil will be put down and He'll do it through the person of His great Redeemer. But there was other hints in Scripture that that something else was anticipated. Namely, that the way this Redeemer would rise to power would only be through suffering. Jesus comes bringing heaven to earth. That's what I mean by the overlap. The new age, the new covenant, the new creation intrudes in the person of Jesus so that right now we can say circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter. What matters is a new creation. Galatians chapter 6. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of us are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All the hopes of the world were on the day when the new Adam would come. When the old creation would give rise to the new creation. When evil would be put down and life would be enjoyed. And that's what Jesus brings for us. But the trouble is that that old age is still continuing. It's still continuing until the days when Jesus, His second coming, will return. And in that day, all of a sudden, the age of death, the age of suffering, the age of battling with sin, the age of cancer, the age of ugly, non-God-honoring desires, awakening in our soul, and then a will for us to act against God and follow those sinful desires, all of that will be gone. I long for that day. But we're living in this period between the first and second appearings of Jesus and the New Testament calls it the last days. 
If someone asks me, are we living in the end times? I say, what do you mean? Usually what they mean by end times is not using the language of Scripture. What the Scripture uses that language, that it's, it's related directly to everything that flows out of Jesus' resurrection. It's the latter days. It's the end times. It's been started. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, you see all this Pentecost stuff happening? The Spirit of God on our heads like fire? Us speaking in tongues, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the latter days. It's come. In former times, God spoke to us through His prophets. But in these latter days, God has spoken to us through His Son. He's already done it. The last days are already upon us. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming? 1 John 2, 18. And that it's the last hour? Well, I tell you, many antichrists have already arisen among us. Indeed, it's the last hour. That's how John talks. The spirit of the antichrist that has been being anticipated is already alive and well, but the day is still coming when all will come to a head. Where tribulation will not just be in pockets around the world, but where I think it will go global. And where there will be one ruler who will be personifying all evil, who will rise above all others. But already there's been pictures of them for 2,000 years. False teaching and persecution. Those are the key traits of the Antichrist. The one who is against the Messiah. Who's bearing in himself the spirit of the serpent. The anti-God. So we're here in this world, and what's our role as the church? Our role as the church, because this isn't just Christ's work, it's the church age, that's the overlap of the ages. The role of the church is to be engaged in mission. Because for us, the day of the Lord has come in the person of Jesus. But for most of the world, the day of the Lord has not come yet. The day of the Lord is portrayed as a future reality that's judgment day. But for us, that judgment day has intruded into our present reality. We're now looking back to it because at the cross, Jesus bears our judgment. But most of the world, judgment day is still to come. The great king of the universe is going to arrive, and when he does, there will be no more opportunity to repent. So what the church is, is we are here now on mission, being sent out before the day of the Lord comes, before the great king arrives, being sent out to proclaim the terms of peace. Surrender and live, or refuse to surrender and die. Will you hear? Will you listen? You will be my witnesses, Jesus says. We're going to make much of Christ. We're going to give testimony to Him in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What is that picture? Jesus comes, He is the sacrifice. He's the one who bears the curse. And now through Him, blessing is going to rise. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, I think this is a picture of conquest. Jason even used that language this morning in the sermon. What's happening? At a spiritual level right now, as we anticipate the physical realities in the future, at a spiritual level right now, what we read in the book of Acts is the Garden of Eden, 
If Jesus is the temple, and we're in him, and we become the temple of God, the presence of God dwelling on us, through us, through, uh, in us, through his spirit, what's happening when the church of God goes global, moves outside of Jerusalem, and begins to spread around the world? When they begin to fulfill Jesus' commission, make disciples of every nation throughout the world, what's happening is the temple of God is beginning to fill the earth. God is reclaiming turf in a pictorial way. But He's reclaiming lives. And all of us then, what happens? We are no longer a physical temple. Instead, we've become the temple. And the law of God has been written in us. We are the imagers, the images Remember, there's no idol in the temple. All there was the character of God imaged in His law. That's what the tablets were put into the Ark of the Covenant. We've become the Ark of the Covenant. And in us now, written on the tablets of the heart, is the law of God, the character of God, and it's to be read in our lives. Witnessing to the worth of our God. Witnessing that His way is best. And how does it happen? It happens through sharing Speaking and through suffering. Those two together. God is worth it, therefore I'm willing to enter into this for the sake of His name. And I'm going to tell you why. Good news. Good news. In the overlap of the ages, now we begin to see the blessing of God that was promised through you, Abraham, all the world would be blessed, the curse would be overcome. I will raise up one single male offspring, a royal descendant, through whom all the world's problems would be fixed. That's what's happening right now. It's not just a random time in history. No, something that was promised 3,000, 4,000 years ago to Abraham is being fulfilled right now. And it's being fulfilled through you and through me. In the north, in the south, in the east, and in the west, the fame of God's name and the person of Jesus is being put forth as a witness. And God is bringing in the fulfillment of His offspring promise. As numerous as the stars in the sky, throughout the ages, men and women, boys and girls, surrendering their life to the King, now seen in the person of His Son. Kick off in rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, government in the land, dispersion and return, overlap of the ages. Mission accomplished. And at the accomplishment of the mission, God's global conquest is done. Evil is put down. No more waters of judgment, now it's the fires of judgment. Missions is complete and worship is realized. All of the offspring of Abraham have been brought in because they've identified with the true offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus. We have re-entered paradise. To him who overcomes, I'll give him the right to eat from the tree of God, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7. And at this point, we've overcome. And we're in. Back into the tree of life. But now the Garden of Eden is not what it was. It's what it should have been. It's expanded and the glory of God is being displayed everywhere. We are home 
forever. That is the story of God's glory in Jesus. Kick off in rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, government in the land, dispersion in return, overlap of the ages, mission accomplished. So, you guys say it for me. Close here. Don't look at the papers. You guys say it for me. K. I. N. Nation redeemed and commissioned. G. Government in the land. D. Good. O. And M. Mission accomplished. Now, on October 11th through the 13th, I'm going to be over at First Free in Maplewood. It's a Saturday night, then I'll preach Sunday morning, and then Sunday night, and then Monday night. It's two hours each night, and I'm going to take kingdom and unpack it in six hours. And you're all welcome to come, if you desire. And so it'll be like a Pastor John weekend seminar, but it'll be a Saturday night, Sunday night, and a Monday night. Just wanted you to know that we'll be doing that. Now, there's a story that comes to us through Jesus' Bible. Jesus' Bible is the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's how Jesus talked about it in Luke 24. It was a three-part Bible. Not the same order as ours, but having the same books as ours. And there's hints in the New Testament that this is how Jesus was thinking about it. It was the law, the prophets, and then he called the third category the Psalms because I think it's the biggest book in the third group. So this is the way I've been approaching it. Jesus said we'd find him in his word and Paul preached about Jesus from the law and from the prophets. He was approaching his Old Testament and all the witnesses the old witnesses suggest this, that Jesus' Bible was structured according to these part three divisions. Our English Bible orderings have some, they're, they've come much later in the history of the church. So I've gone back and tried to say, what would I learn if I was reading the Bible the way that Jesus was reading the Bible? Now if we just look at the story, this is how it works. You'll notice that the Old Testament is framed by narrative. Narrative starts it in the law, it continues in the, in the prophets, but only in the former prophets. And then in the latter prophets, we have a break. The story part of the Bible stops, and we move over into commentary. And the commentary goes in the latter prophets and the former writings. And right here, this is where we're at in our process. We're not in the storybooks. The story stopped at the exile. Kings came... Israel gets kicked out of Judah, and the story pauses for a second with Israel in exile as if they want us to feel the weightiness of the results of sin, separation from God. So we learn in the former prophets, the storybooks, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, what happened, and then the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve guys, all fill out for us why Israel's in exile. Then we come to the writings. And in the writings, the entire disposition of the Bible changes. When we're reading the Bible the way that Jesus was reading it, we don't end the story in Malachi. 
Malachi is a hard book because he's spanking Israel once again for more and more sin. In Jesus' Bible, that's not where he leaves Israel. He leaves them reminding them of kingdom hope. Hope that starts with the story of Ruth. It, It takes the story of how David's ancestors were exiled outside the land and how God restored them back into the land through a kinsman redeemer from Bethlehem. Sound familiar? It's David's ancestry, and it seems to be in this, placed in Jesus' Bible after the fact that they're already in exile, to remind us that it wasn't just, the goal wasn't just to get to the first David, but God made made the first David promises that there would come a second one, who would also rise from... Bethlehem, who would bring the people out of exile. The last word in the book of Ruth is David, to remind us of the kingdom promises. And that's how we read then the book of Psalms. And Psalms through Lamentations give us the, help us hear the words of those, that small minority, in the midst of Israel's darkness who were living in hope. What does it look like to Hope rightly in the kingdom when you're living and it seems like God is far away. And we come all the way down to Lamentations, which we'll hit two weeks from now, Lord willing. And in Lamentations, or three weeks from now, in Lamentations, what does it do? It, it, it's been talking a whole bunch of commentary, and then it brings us back to the exile in order to transition us back into the story which begins in Daniel, which is in exile. So kings left us off with Judah being kicked out of the land in exile. Daniel picks up with, now Israel, the story picks up with Israel in Babylon. Judah separated from God, and yet, what is it doing? It's screaming kingdom hope. Hope. Hope for the great kingdom. Will you put your eyes on the promises of God and not forget And the story goes all the way to Chronicles, and Chronicles ends with the cry, let us go back up to Jerusalem. Let us go up to Jerusalem in anticipation for the coming of the King, whom God promised, who would put down all evil. And you turn the page and it says, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He's come. And wise guys from the east show up looking for the king of the Jews. And Matthew ends his gospel declaring, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all the nations. The writings... Well, let me start over here. In the law, the first five books, the old covenant is established. We meet God as Savior. In the prophets, the Old Covenant is enforced. We meet God as the Sovereign. And in the writings, the Old Covenant is enjoyed. It's an enjoyment of God and of covenant relationship with God that is birthed in the context of suffering and separation. And that's why so many of us are drawn to read the Psalms, to read the Proverbs, Because we find ourselves in that overlap of the ages as well. Christ has come. We know God reigns. But everything's not worked out yet.
K-I-N is covered here. Kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, that's all in Genesis. Nation redeemed and commissioned, that's Exodus through Deuteronomy. Government in the land is all Joshua through Kings. And then the story stops for two big sections in the Old Testament. Then the story picks up again, and what we read about is their exile and initial restoration, their dispersion and their return to the land. But it's only D. It leaves us hanging, demanding more. So, hmm, I have to ponder. I was going to go through the entire Old Testament in ten minutes. But I, I'm looking at the clock and saying I don't have time. So you could all go to Desiring God and type in Old Testament in ten minutes and see that I did it there. It was actually 11 minutes and 30 seconds. But what I do is, oh, I wanted to do it. Um, I, I just walk through the whole t- Old Testament. I've written it down for you, my big idea statements of each book. And so I go through all this, but all of this can also be unpacked in my... Um, right, right there. This is the only plug I've made in my years for this, I think. But if you want more, it's in our bookstore. Um, what the Old Testament authors really cared about, a survey of Jesus' Bible. I want to just give you guys now an opportunity to ask any questions that you have about our day. And next week we're going to jump into Song of Songs. anything at all. It was just a fly-through. It was a lot, I know. Okay. Yeah, Sue. It surprised me when you said that people did not know the law. I'm thinking that those people who did not They did. And that law, and it it was heard at Mount Sinai, and then it was even written in Deuteronomy. And it was written in Exodus. The Ten Commandments are in there. And, but they only heard a certain kind of hearing. So we read in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, let me just help us here. In Deuteronomy 29.4, the Lord says, you've seen, there's different types of spiritual disability. There's eye problems, there's hearing problems, there's heart problems, and then there's mind problems. So he's going to address three of them here. But he's going to focus on eyesight. You mentioned hearing, but it'll, it'll cover it. Israel experiences the fire of God at Mount Sinai, and before that, all through the Exodus. They've seen something with their physical eyes. It says, 
You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to his servants, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the great wonders, but to this day the Lord hasn't given you a heart to understand, eyes to see or ears to hear. So they were hearing, but they weren't hearing. And so what I meant was, in the the fact that the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone were put inside the ark, no one could actually see the specific laws themselves. And I think it was an intentional parable of God to talk about the nature of the people. That the law was outside of them, not inside of them. And because of that, when I looked at you, I didn't see the law of God, the character of God embodied in your life. What I saw was rebellion against God. His spirit was in the temple, not in me. His law was on the tablets in the heart of the temple, not in me. And so both the prophets after Moses and the later prophets, end times prophets called the apostles, they talk about now what the new covenant is, is we've been given eyes to see, we've been given ears to hear, we know our God truly now. So it's not that they never heard it, it's that they didn't hear it. They had physical ability, but were never granted spiritual ability, the majority of them. God never overcame their hardness. And he did that as part of his kingdom plan, as I'm reading it, in order to bring about, all, to let all the glory focus on Jesus. And so that we might be all the more marveled by it. Tim? Yeah, to put, a pic, to put a picture of the house, to put a picture of the house in there, um, that would be, it would be very fine to do that, yes. Right, it would, and it, and it would, it would allow a, a frame to be seen from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Um, I had a lot more circles on there, images at one point, and I was told to strip them, so... That was one that I had pondered, and um, if you want to use my stuff, you could add it in, okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here as we enter into a one more semester of studying your word. I pray that you would give us the new covenant eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to know you. May we see glory, hear truth, and know you in an intimate, beautiful way that moves us to run from sin and cling and hope to you, to rejoice in the gospel when we mess up, when we rebel, to find a Father who cares deeply about His children, to find a Savior who has worked in every way that we need so that you are right now 
100% for us. I thank you that you have let us be part of your kingdom plan. And not on the side of judgment, but on the side of mercy. May Jesus be exalted in our lives through the rest of the semester. Help us grow in here and may what we learn in here impact us through our weeks. Move us to be more grateful and more surrendered, more hopeful. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.